Welcome to another episode of Love and Citizenship. Thank you for tuning into the episode this week. And I'm glad you did because our guest today is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful writer, podcaster, comedian, and just an all around wonderful human, Rosie Wilby. Rosie and I connected over Instagram about a year and a half ago, and it's just one of those coincidental things that are all too frequent for this podcast now, where we connected, got talking about her podcast called The Break of Monologues, which was around the time her book was coming out, and kind of based on the conversations, listening in on the podcast, which you should absolutely fucking check out, but also the book, which I had the opportunity to read, and is just this incredible piece of literature, and I think to sit across from the person who's written this piece that, you know, resonated for me on so many different levels is just one of those rare opportunities that I sometimes have to pinch myself and say, fuck, this is actually happening. I'm actually doing this. And I feel so incredibly blessed and so, so grateful that she decided to come on the podcast and take the time to have a conversation that truly remains a highlight for me. It is a wonderful conversation. We talk about her podcast, about her career as a comedian, how she got about writing books, what is it about love that draws, you know, her creative curiosity, and also the the way she's gone about writing about different kinds of love and what love means across years and generations. And it's, I could stay here mumbling and talking about what this podcast episode is, but I think the episode just really stands strong and like stands like as a testament of just the incredible person that Rosie really is and the artist that she really is. So I'm not going to take any more time and get get her talking. But before I do, if you like this episode, if you like this podcast, do leave a review. You know, we're very small and very independent and every every rating, every feedback, every bit of a comment just shows the platforms we're on that we're a podcast worth listening to. So if you'd like to support that, please, please do leave a star rating. And if you're feeling generous, maybe a comment as well. It's always really nice to hear what this podcast means to people. But I'm really excited for the lot of you to really hear this episode. So without, without further wait, it is an honor to introduce my guest for this episode, the wonderful, the truly incredible Rosie Wilby. Yes, that's right. We did meet on Instagram. And I'm a comedian and podcaster and the author of the two books that you've read, The Breakup Monologues. And the first one was called Is Monogamy Dead? Mm-hmm. That That's what it's all about is are we having monogamous relationships? What does that mean in the modern era of dating apps and Tinder and breadcrumbing and conscious uncoupling? Or are we looking to these sort of new structures well we say new you know in many parts of the world they've been around a long time but there's certainly a new way that we're framing these sort of non-exclusive and perhaps what we might see as alternative relationship structures like thrapples or people who have well some people call themselves relationship anarchists and they have lots of different types of connections going on um so yeah really sort of rewriting these structures that, that we've traditionally had that elevate the sort of monogamous heteronormative partnership above all else. So, yeah, I've been really interested to look at all of that in comedy shows and articles and talks and 
now the two books and the Breakout Monologues, which you mentioned, is also a podcast, which has just been nominated for a British Podcast Award, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I'm really pleased to meet you and so chuffed that you enjoyed the Breakout Monologues. I recommended it to so many people. I've given it as a gift to two people this year as well. I just think it's incredible. Oh, yeah, no, I, I personally think it's incredible. And I, it's it's rare for me to have a book that I enjoy so much and then get the opportunity to talk about it with the person who wrote it. It's like oh. a weird nerdy experience that I've only had to experience once before. So I'm really, I'm, I'm so delighted that you agreed to do this. And I'm really glad that I get to talk about it. And I hope with having this conversation, more people are intrigued by the book, go buy it, but also get to see some of the behind the works of how the book came about and what, you know, what, what the heart of it is. Yeah, because I mean, I hope the book is for everyone, really, because a book called The Breakup Monologues, people assume it's only for people who've just had a breakup. And I think it is incredibly comforting Mm -hmm. for those people. And I've certainly chatted to friends and people who've who've been through that. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, my goodness, your book has been a real godsend. And it's really helped me sort of feel positive that there is hope at at the end there is light at the end of the tunnel because the subtitle is the unexpected joy of heartbreak and it's about sort of re-embracing that new chapter that that singledom that sense of self that reclamation of one's own identity which can get a bit lost and submerged in the coziness of commitment so yeah, it's interesting on, on that level for people who do find themselves single, perhaps unexpectedly, if a, you know, a breakup has happened that they, they were not seeing coming. But it's equally, it's for people who are in relationships and who are navigating that complexity, that uh, conflict really between that individuality and embracing your own space and wanting to share their life with somebody and live with somebody, have a romantic sexual partnership of some kind with somebody or indeed with with more than one person in some cases. But, you know, we still sort of celebrate in particular the the couple dynamic, which for many, many people, even perhaps when they've explored other options, that's still the sort of primary way that in the Western world, at least, people people seem to like to connect and and partner up in, in a sexual and romantic setting. But yeah, it's so for anyone navigating, living together, getting together, dating, uh, commitment, discussions about monogamy and marriage and what those things mean. I think it's uh, it's got something for for all of those people at all those different stages. What what struck out for me, obviously, like you said, for a book that's called The Breakup Monologue, you almost expect that to be like just stories about heartbreak. But for me, I think I mentioned this to you before. For me, the heart of the story, obviously, is so much of your story with your now wife. And kind of, it's it's even the way you've presented it, you know, before a girlfriend and after a girlfriend, and just the way you present that story and all of it. It's from a nerdy, creative, artistic standpoint, it's fantastic the way you've weaved that narrative. And to then bring in individual stories. Um, I think my favourite standout one, mild spoilers for anybody who's listening to this, is the chapter, The Mots of Doom. <laughs> and I adore it. I, I I adore what the moths of doom are, but I just adored like how you start that chapter, but also when, you know, the, these extra stories you bring into that chapter. I suppose for me, the, the biggest question to get the ball rolling is what made you write not just is monogamy dead, but also the break of monologues and how did those two kind of come about? 
Well, yes, the, the Moths of Doom, perhaps we should just explain that. Yeah. It was something that a couple of Keynesian friends and I came up with on an early episode of the podcast because we were thinking about a sort of opposite term to the butterflies of love that you feel when you first meet someone and things are very exciting and, oh, you know, I can't wait to see them and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so the opposite sort of feeling in your tummy when you start to realise things are going wrong, mm. we decided would be the moths of doom. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, just just, <laughs> just to explain that, which does sound a bit weird out of concept. Yeah. So the books came about really because I, oh, you know, maybe over 10 years ago now was looking for a topic for a show to take to Edinburgh. I've worked as a comedian for many years and sort of gigging around on the comedy circuit and then wanted to have a bit of a theme to talk about for a solo show and decided to write a show called The Science of Sex. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of spoofy, subversive sex ed lesson, like the kind we, we should be having at school, really, <laughs> that yeah. talks about queerness, that talks about diversity and inclusion, that mm-hmm. talks about relationships not living up to our expectations or the narratives that we, that we see in the media talking about all kinds of different things. And I think I was particularly interested to look at relationships outside of the way in which they're sort of taught to us in school because as an openly gay woman, you know, I'd already had to think outside the box about relationship narratives anyway. So from there, really started thinking about the science of attraction and sexuality and love and, yeah, started writing a few more more serious articles and that kind of thing and then in particular things took a a slightly more serious investigative quest when I wrote the follow-up show to that which was called Is Monogamy Dead which then of course eventually became the first book. Mm -hmm. Um, I recorded a Radio 4 forethought that people can listen to called A New Currency of Commitment which sort of looks at the the value systems that we put on different types of love and and how we do sort of inflate that, the value we place on erotic, romantic love above all other kinds. And we sort of perhaps are dismissive of friendship and platonic love when when we think in those sort of frameworks. So then really I realized that those two shows needed a, kind of third show to neatly finish off a trilogy and really if you're finishing off a trilogy of shows about love and relationships you've got to write about breakups Um, and of course in a sort of life imitating art kind of way around that time the relationship that I had been in was ending and yeah, I wrote a solo show, show called The Conscious Uncoupling, mm-hmm. which was slightly ironic title because I was looking at how my breakups hadn't necessarily been that conscious and the communication hadn't always been that good and that sort of clear mm-hmm. and that sort of respectful and compassionate. Um, even when both people had maybe had the best intentions, we just weren't equipped with the right tools. Yeah to understand what was going on and manage the sort of, you know, the the expectations that you'd had that the relationship would last forever and now the sort of bewilderment of that not being the case because things were not working out. That was a really sweet show with a kind of 
a narrative that jumps in in time, which is actually something that I now do in in my books. Yeah. So you get this bittersweet quality when you are sort of perhaps hearing about a relationship beginning mm -hmm. and how kind of lovely that is, but actually you already know that it is going to end. Yeah. What strikes me maybe more about the break of monologues is how much you know i mean you you've your history and your background in comedy so that comes through like it absolutely comes through in the times i've laughed out loud reading the book it's yeah it's there's there's a good few of those but i think there's a lot of empathy and there's there's so much heart that a level of vulnerability with which you write which blows me away i think it's absolutely incredible you not only introduce some of your own vulnerability and some of your own you know lived experience to it but i think what's remarkable is how through telling those stories and the stories of other people who you are featuring in the book you you leave enough room for people the reader especially to kind of embrace some of that own vulnerability and reflect on their experience how how did that come about like what has your journey been as an artist of honing your own expression and finding your creative voice that's a loaded question i'm mindful <laughs> yeah isn't it i mean i've i've done a lot of different things i've presented a lot of radio shows mm. as well as now doing a podcast where I ask people about their breakup stories. Mm -hmm. So when you have a lot of experience of interviewing people, particularly when it's live radio or at a live event, and the, the Breakup Monologue podcast, we tend to record live in front of an audience, even though we could edit slightly the podcast that goes out. We don't tend to edit it much. We leave it yeah. as live. So it's got that organic feel and you're pretty much experiencing the same thing that that the audience that were in the room have experienced unless something goes wrong like somebody spills a drink or <laughs> you know something that you don't necessarily need to hear there's someone mopping the stage or <laughs> that did happen once um when when you've had experience interviewing people and getting their stories from them mm -hmm. you yeah develop a sense of sharing your own story and weaving that in with other people's experiences and sort of like you say perhaps allowing allowing space and room to do that and I think with the trilogy of shows that I wrote and toured the sort of evolution on from that was then to develop the, the second part of that trilogy into the first book and really I think writing that first book laid a template for how the second book was going to be structured to to some extent because I wanted in the first book to combine my own story with thoughts and ideas from other people including academics and experts who really research this stuff and know exactly how the brain works when we're falling in and out of love but my own sort of personal journey and you know the reader I think is discovering things about relationships and how they work along with me mm -hmm. so we're, we're going on that journey together I think I hope and it's also a document of the creative journey of finding out how to put this these ideas these thoughts these knowledge mm -hmm. these feelings into creative work that goes on stage in, in some way or, or gets documented or gets made into a, a thing. You're dead on. I think the book explores so much of your own personal experience and so much of your experience through the many loves you've had and, you know, across time and just just the, the, the funny episodes there as well, but also the lessons you kind of learned along the way and maybe learned a couple of years later. And all, all of this, it's so weaved through it. 
I suppose now, as you are today, and obviously with the context of the book and, you know, the breakups and your own journey with love, for you now, what have you come to understand love as being for yourself? Like, what is love for you? <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, that is the eternal question. Yes. And, you know, it's it's really complex and we don't really have the language. You know, you've just asked me what is love and it's this one word that in our language is used to mean so many different things. I mean, I always joke that, you know, I love chocolate and I love my wife and one of those is an insatiable craving that never goes away. But, uh, you know, the Greeks had all these different words for different types of love, which I think was more helpful because you knew which type of love you were talking about. And yeah, I think I think it's, it's, it's really tricky because when we say I love you, you know, what we're meaning by that, it changes even when we're saying it to the same person over a period of time. Because when you say some that to somebody when you fairly recently met them and started having some kind of connection and relationship with them, you probably mean I really fancy you and really enjoy having sex with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're Largely. Not wrong. Yeah. Whereas if you say that after you've been together 10, 20 years, you mean I really love our life together, our friendship, our companionship. I love how much you care for our pets or our children or, you know, our friends or our community, whatever it is. And it's going to be much less about a really thrilling, you know, hedonistic kind of wall-to-wall sex party. (laughs) (laughs) I have done comedy at a sex party, actually. You can read about that in uh, in the books too. Um, But it's it's about something very different, which, of course, many people would argue is real love, is a much more precious kind of love. But, But then we don't typically value that more dull, and boring day-to-day mundane putting the bins out together and running at home together and cleaning up when you know your baby's been sick or your dog has pooed on the floor or whatever you know we don't necessarily yeah. celebrate that in the same way in love songs and films because it's not as intense mm-hmm. the chemical reward that we get from that kind of love is not the same kind of drug-like hit and drugs are you know an appropriate metaphor because people who are in love Mm -hmm. are consistently found to be responding like drug addicts when their brains are scanned Um, you know and people who've been heartbroken are going through a withdrawal process Mm -hmm. so what what is love you know what what type of love are you you talking about Mm -hmm. and for me i you know, I think all of them are important and I think we can feel all those different types of love for different people at, at the same time simultaneously. So that's why polyamory, I think, is a, a really valid option for many, many people if you've got the time and the skills and the emotional maturity and agility mm-hmm. <laughs> to yep. navigate. I think that there's something about... I'm. I can't even code it directly, but something at some point you talk about failing at non-monogamy and how that allowed you to better understand relationships. Am I getting that right? Or some version of that? Well, I think both of my books mm. 
so just to sort of finally finish the story about about the creative process so is monogamy dead came out in 2017 i also narrated the audiobook for that which is such a weird experience and then at a similar time to when that came out i applied for funding to do a project called the breakup monologues which is was it was very early days in the podcasting world then so it was originally going to be a sort of live chat show with the option of a sort of added on maybe we would you know record one or two of these shows for a podcast and obviously then in the end the podcast seemed such a good idea that 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 became more of a strand of it than the live show per se and yeah, so we did record some of the first season actually in studio, like a sort of radio show. Yeah. And then I went back to the idea of it being a like a live podcast and, and we did them live, although I had to obviously change back again to a slightly different format during the pandemic. Yeah. And so there is another season that's sort of just people chatting over, over Zoom like this. Mm-hmm. So the Breakup Monologues podcast then led to the Breakup Monologues book. Yeah. And... Both of the two books really are looking at something through the opposite or the perceived opposite of it, if you know what I mean. So Is Monogamy Dead looks at how you can think more consciously about how to do a monogamous relationship by looking at and considering in a completely pragmatic and fair and reasonable lens Mm-hmm. non-monogamous relationships, polyamorous relationships, which, you know, certainly at the time of writing that book were still viewed as a freak show. And I wanted to look at those relationships and look at, hey, why are these, for some people, really working well? Yeah. You know, these open relationships and, and different types of partnerships, mm-hmm. like people living in a sort of polycule, which is a nice idea, a nice variant on that molecule word. <laughs> and, um, you know, I wanted to look at it through that lens to look at what I could learn about how to either, you know, jump into the world of polyamory or, as it turned out, move back into the world of monogamy mm-hmm. more informed and with better language, better skills mm-hmm. that we're just not trained in if yeah. we just follow the monogamous script about how we're supposed to have relationships. If monogamy is the sort of assumed cultural default, then we never really think about alternatives, which means we just don't think at all. And that's the problem. We don't think consciously about what we're doing. So anything that challenges you, even if you don't change who you are, what your life is, how you're having relationships, Mm -hmm. if you've had to think about something, then it probably helps you to progress in some way. So I I think that first book really is about how do you do monogamy better by considering non-monogamy. And I think the breakup monologues is about how do you do commitment and staying together better by actually celebrating and valuing breakups and what they teach us. So in some ways, the, both of the books have got that similar approach. Yeah. You know, let's look at the other way of doing something to celebrate and work out how we can do do this better. And I think that stands to the strength of it at least in my experience of reading the breakup monologues, instead of kind of just having like a very rosy picture of love and like a, you know, this rainbows and sunshines, it, it, it very, very much pushes you to stories of people going through horrible times and discovering, you know, things about their partners and then the world falling apart, mm-hmm. really. But also the, the hope, it, it is, like you said, there's the light at the end of the tunnel or the hope at the end of it, like it's not all doomed. It's not the end of it all. I mean, I think I think it's difficult to for me to sort of 
I, I keep having to justify to myself actually staying in a relationship because the book really is about breakups being yeah. pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is really about that liberation mm-hmm. and journey of things getting better really beginning on the day that the breakup happens for that person who finds out something horrible about their partner, even though that is their lowest point, that's the beginning of things getting sorted out and things getting better and their life improving massively because they are liberated from what has been a painful situation, but they haven't been able to see it and what has been limiting them and holding them back because they don't know the full picture or don't know the truth. I think also for me, I think as I taper out of that, like you said, you know, the drug fueled, everything's exciting, you know, sex on the wall, all of this like very excited young love. (laughs) And as I start looking at my future of like, okay, what is the kind of long-term commitment that I want and what does that future look like? I think what for me, and I know I mentioned this briefly before we started recording, but I think there's a particular instance in the book where the, the breakup monologues where you talk about your partner and you having nights where you slept separately you know, your partner with the dog, you with the cat, and kind of how that had an impact on your relationship. And I think for somebody reading it, I'd I'd argue for me as maybe a 21, 22 year old reading it, that would have seemed far from a celebration of respectful and, you know, love where you respect the individuality. But reading it now, you know, it was just like, God, this is so loving. And this, this this is the kind of long term commitment love and like the slow burn, but the I'm building a life with you love that genuinely, that was beautiful to read. Yeah, well, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because if you, you know, I know, my wife sometimes feels like, you know, on nights that I want to sleep separately, because maybe we've got different schedules, and she's getting up early or, or something, or I'm coming in late from an event or, or something that you know she sometimes feels a bit you know um they can you know even if you've had really kind of grown-up conscious discussions about it all you can still have that voice inside you that feels a bit rejected oh she doesn't want to sleep in the same bed as me yeah so we do try and balance it and and have times um obviously whenever we go on holiday go away together we're, we're sleeping in the same bed and that almost makes it more special if a lot of the time we sleep separately when we're at home because we're working and we want to have a really good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we are led to believe so strongly that it's just something you're supposed to do. But I've spoken to so many people, particularly straight women, who are like, <laughs> I've got that partner snores, you know. <laughs> I definitely love the nights when I sleep in the spare room because he's just <laughs> hogging all the bed, hogging all the duvet. Yeah, so, and and also because we've got pets, you know, yeah, the dog and cat really love it when we sleep separately because, like you say, typically my wife would sleep with the dog and I would sleep with the cat and they just really cuddle in when they've got just one of us to sort of full attention from and and the animals love that. Yeah. It's, It's really cute. But obviously you don't want to, yeah, create too much distance with your partner so that you you lose that kind of intimacy and connection. Mm-hmm. So I think it, I think it's a balance and it's um, going to be in constant flux. Maybe you'll have phases when you want a bit of independence and space and, you know, you just feel it's nice sleeping apart and sometimes you might be sleeping together again for a phase. I think what that stands out for me is how in a relationship and at least 
how I've now started to come to understand and still continuing to understand relationships is how do you negotiate space for individuality while also fostering a sense of we're together and we're in a partnership and there is love here. And I think I was going to ask you how you've managed to do that in a long-term relationship, but I think you've answered that in some ways of it's a balance. It really is a balance. What I'm curious about, because this is where I turn to your wisdom now, is for, for people or young couples now, you know, couples my age who are now maybe for the first time cohabitating with a partner. What are things in your experience and like for you personally, through your lived experience that you've come to value and come to say, so, I don't know, any words of wisdom and advice for, I don't know, people like me? Uh, well, yeah, it's communication, isn't it? I suppose it's an acceptance that there's a lot of really kind of tedious, pragmatic stuff that you have to get on with and muck on with together as as a team, as a partnership. There's almost a part of your relationship that becomes like a business relationship. It's kind of like you're running a business together mm-hmm. and you're like constantly thinking about what are we going to eat for dinner tonight you know what are we what shopping do we need to get in who's going to walk the dog who's going to I don't know drop the kids off at school or who's going to make the beds who's going to do the hoovering who's going to you know there's a lot of just stuff which is just not exciting thrilling stuff and it's about a negotiation and trying to make sure that all that domestic admin is is split in a in a fair way and that sort of allows people to to do the things that they feel skilled at or or they enjoy even though most of us don't enjoy like you know washing up or whatever but you know in a dishwasher (laughs) but um but yeah you know I mean if you can afford it get a cleaner but you know not of course not not everybody can but you know there's there's lots of just boring stuff yeah that unfortunately we need to do when we live together and mm-hmm. um, just need to make sure we're not leaving it all to our partner and that kind of domestic admin and labor is a big source of, of tension when people live together absolutely i think coming back to the book because i mean my other big recommendation for anybody listening is just read the book i think there's so much of i think by virtue of sharing your own lived experience but that of others i think it, it's it's been such a important book for me and I think I'll continue to revisit it through years when you when you write a book like that especially a book not just the obviously how much of an undertaking it is to kind of write it but also the nature of what you've written you know a deeply vulnerable text and I'm I'm curious what that process was like for you and like I can imagine creativity on the best of days is quite isolating because it's just you with a keyboard how do you motivate yourself? What has your experience been of writing this book? Yeah, just what's what's it been like? Yeah, well, this book in particular was quite weird because it was written during the pandemic. So that, that is quite an isolating experience. As a performer, I have typically been used to getting feedback fairly insta- instantaneously on creativity so you can you know write some material and go out and try it out at a comedy gig and see whether the audience are laughing yeah. or not and that could be a, a really swift process whereas with a book I mean yes you could send chapters to writer friends and get feedback you could get feedback from your editor from for various stages of it but typically you just go away and write it and you send it to your publisher when you 
when you finished, mm-hmm. you know, and then they come back and give you some notes and you do some edits that go back and forth then. But typically you'll write a complete, well, it won't be a first draft because you will have done loads of edits before you hand it in, but you know, you send a complete draft to your publisher. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's, it is a complex process, but because I've done it once before, I kind of knew what I was doing. I did mm-hmm. get some feedback from a writer friend of mine, Abby Tartellin, who's a great writer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's. I think it's useful to have friends to motivate you. But to sort of mimic that idea of the performance, mm-hmm. I would sometimes kind of read bits out either sort of in my head and imagine performing it or sort of literally read it out in the kitchen. And you're sort of thinking about, okay, when I eventually – have a book launch when the world <laughs> goes back to normal, yeah. what bit would I read out? You know, mm-hmm. it's just making sure you've got those bits that you would perform or or even thinking about, you know, the time when I would eventually narrate the audio book and I, I'll have to read the whole thing out. How does it feel to perform it? And I think that's important to me to sort of feel that sense of sharing it and like you're having a conversation with somebody just like this now and what sort of things will I want to tell people about it when I've written it and when it comes out but yeah like I say it was a weird experience because when it first came out in hardback Mm -hmm. the world was still everyone was still a bit cautious about going out to live events so I couldn't have like my big proper book launch until actually the paperback came out and that was really great to have that kind of a celebration eventually, yeah. um, you know, because festivals and events start started happening again when, mm-hmm. when not long after the book had come out. And also there were just some events, sadly, that because people were still very nervous about coming out, mm-hmm. you know, didn't, didn't sort of sell. And some very, very surprising cancellations. Like I was booked for like the Chortle Comedy Book Festival okay. at the British Library, which just didn't happen. It's like, whoa. Yeah. It's kind of quite a big a big festival to com- get completely pulled. I, I can imagine working on something for so long and then to have it out and not being able to celebrate it with all the ceremony and like the, the celebration of, I think, a text like this. What's it been like since, you know, kind of now with the events coming back and now having had the paperback launch? I think what, what's that been like? Yeah, no, the paperback launch especially was really, really fun. And the paperback publication in general, I did a lot of kind of TV and radio. Mm-hmm. And so that was all really great. It was on Graham Norton's radio I, show. I heard but, that one yet. Yeah, which was really, really fun. That was a lovely chat with him. Almost as lovely as this. And um, <laughs> I'll tell you about that. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the, the, you know, I did some TV stuff and lots of podcasts and articles and interviews in the press and stuff. So, mm-hmm. so that was really great. There was a lot of momentum around it. And, uh, you know, I've heard from friends about a lot of bookshops that have been stocking it. There were lots of my friends sending me photos of WH Smiths in various stations, mm-hmm. like Houston Station and, and stuff, were stocking it. So, and, and some places had it in the window, you know, so that's great. Yeah. But I think what is important is in publishing, there's so many books and it's such a competitive world. And there's not always enough, in my opinion, measures in place to celebrate diversity and diverse voices and 
my core audience has always, I suppose, been the LGBTQ plus community mm-hmm. because that's where people have known me. That's my most sort of loyal following of people who've come to my shows and so on. So you can sometimes get put in a bit of a, a niche a little bit. I mean, my book is broad. It's for everyone. It talks about breakups, a universal experience. And yes, my own story is of having a relationship with a woman, but really it's all the things we go through are pretty much what everyone else goes through. And a lot of my kind of straight female friends have said, well, gosh, it's so refreshing to read about relationship between two women because I just thought it would be really easy for you because, you know, men are so difficult and I thought it would be fine, but actually everyone just has the same conundrums and conflicts and issues um, because you're two human beings and human beings, whoever we are, whether we're male, female, non-binary. So, yeah, I do think publishing doesn't quite understand diverse voices yet and sort of really giving enough support to minorities you know, and sort of understanding how marginalised voices might not have the same sort of affluent sets of communities and friends who can sort of afford to buy the hardback when it first comes out and it's at full price and, you know, sort of allowing for people who, who might not have kind of rich friends who can who can buy it on on the first day that it comes out because yeah my hardback was like 16.99 and i think when it first came out the kindle version was about eight pounds and i've got friends who are like i don't know nurses who hadn't had their paycheck yet and they were like oh god you know i'm just buying kindles for 99p and that's how i you know can read stuff because there's there's lots of things that are available, you know, really cheaply. You know, so it's a real big ask to say, well, would you buy my hardback for sixteen ninety nine? That's you know, it's a lot. Yeah. So I just think there isn't enough understanding of the sort of systems of privilege that allow certain authors to thrive over others. And you know, you see the sort of big fancy book festivals and book tents with you know white men of a certain age. Yeah many of whom are brilliant minds. But, you know, diversity is creeping in. But I think there hasn't been quite enough understanding of how to fully support that. And and so, yeah, I've, I've spoken a little bit about that on some podcasts and, yeah. and what have you. And, uh, yeah, keen to keep waving that flag and, and sort of talking about diversity and, and how we do that because just the models by how the success of a book is evaluated is, is just really not not allowing for diverse voices i think what you're really hitting at is not enough to just have diverse voices it's how you support those voices once you've given them the opportunity to speak and write and give that support i think yeah i mean most most publishers are targeting a certain demographic of readers that they see as the holy grail and it's mostly straight white young women because uh, they're they're the people who read mostly, yeah. and also they're the people who are on like BookTok and you know and Insta and, and all of this stuff, and and most book bloggers are yeah. of that demographic. But it just means certain things get written and certain things get read. So yeah. you know we need to we need to kind of think in a more sophisticated way. So so with the challenges, not only that come with the writing of a book, but also after you've written and the journey of it, I think. How how do you feel your creative spirit? How do you keep yourself motivated? <laughs> yeah, well, it's tough. I'm, I'm trying to 
basically my agent is trying to pitch for me to be able to write a third book at the moment. And so I suppose this is really where <laughs> I need to sort of make a call to action and for support from your community and your listeners. Because, you know, anyone who checks out the breakup monologues and, and buys it and spreads the word, posts about it on their social media maybe post a review on Amazon or, you know, does something or post a review on Goodreads if you don't use Amazon. You know, anything you can do to sort of say, this book is great, I'd love to hear more from this author, it kind of does sort of filter out there and feedback yeah. to the publishing world in a sense. And it will make publishers think, yes, we should get Rosie Will we to write more. And yeah. I'm putting out that I want to write another book. But at the moment, I'm not able to because we're not being given, you know, a publishing deal for another book at the moment, only because the idea I wanted to write about has been just written about by a white, straight, heteronormative person. <laughs> and, and they don't want to hear a, a middle-aged lesbian writing about it. Yeah, um, yeah so it totally is exactly what I've just been talking about it. And yeah, like, oh, we've already had somebody write about this, even though I would write something totally different about it and about my experience. And I would bring in lots of different types of voices to share their stories. But anyway, you know, but, but really do please go and check out my writing. And if you enjoy it, please just spread the word. Please just post on anywhere you can. And that really, really, really helps with my momentum for getting finally, hopefully, a deal for another, another book because I'd love to write more, share more thoughts and stories with people out there with the world and I, I think I hope my way of looking at connection and relationships has helped a lot of people who feel they don't fit into the mainstream narrative and I've certainly had messages to that effect and that, that they have felt less alone for reading my work which is what it's all about and those messages mean the world but if you can as well as messaging me which is amazing and lovely like yeah. put a message out there more publicly too then they hopefully <laughs> publishers and editors and people in the books world will see that and they'll be like yes <laughs> yes rosie will be here's some money please write a book <laughs> usually, usually if a guest said that i'd be like i hope that really happens for you i think it needs to happen for you and you know <laughs> I, I sent you a text after i finished reading the book but i think your book has had a profound experience in my life like very deeply and like you said it made me feel a little less alone as a queer man it's such an incredible book rosie it really is and I, 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 it, this is the clearest call to action that I could ever give. Buy the book. Please buy the book. If you're listening to this, just buy it and read it. It's absolutely fucking incredible. And I want to read whatever this next book is. So I'm not hoping it'll happen. I'm counting days till it happens. Well and truly. Okay, I have two, two more questions for you. And these are questions I ask everybody who's on the podcast. The first question is... Let's imagine I have a time machine and I can send you back to 10-year-old Rosie. What would you, what would you say? Ooh, yeah. Well, I would say kind of go for it. Don't let people kind of scare you into compromise. I think I wasted a bit of time. I took too long to follow my true path mm -hmm. of creativity because there was a lot of fear-mongering when I imagine there still is among young people that you sort of have to do something sensible to get a job and make a living. And I think actually if I had just got on with my creative path a bit sooner mm -hmm. than sort of being a bit half here, one foot here, one foot there, 
I might have probably ended up earning more money than <laughs> kind of scraping by a little bit, as I have done at times. Yeah. And, you know, things are a bit better now than, than they were. But, yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough times <laughs> to be a creative artist. Yeah. And I, I kind of think, yeah, I wish I'd been writing books. Oh, my goodness. You know, I know people who were writing books when I was still – kind of I, I was doing music for years which was lovely and I wouldn't change that experience but I wish I'd been writing books as well then yeah. and just started doing stuff because people were getting like really proper advances like mm-hmm. you know many 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 times what anyone gets offered to write a book now unless they're a massive celebrity I mean yeah. they get offered crazy amounts but you know I, I, I sort of got paid just enough to live on for the few months that I I wrote the book during the pandemic when actually we lived on very very little yeah. um you know, and yeah, I kind of wish I'd got on with it sooner. So, so I'd say, yeah, follow that that voice, okay. and and do do the stuff that feels right for you, that that fits your authentic voice. Don't don't let other people tell you this is who you've got to be. Yeah, you've got to be sensible and and look at how you're going to have mm-hmm. some kind of financial plan. Yeah, and it is it is really hard in the arts, but but yeah, do do go for it. Okay, similar tangent, but what is your hope for yourself? Not in the near future, but like medium to distance. So we'll say five to ten years. What is your hope for yourself? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's, re- it's it's an interesting one, that, because I think if you'd have told me five, ten years ago mm-hmm. that I would have two books out, yeah. you know, that had been sort of long-listed and short-listed for prizes and had great reviews in national press and that had great feedback and, you know, I'd have an award-winning podcast and, you know, I'd presented radio shows yeah. and interviewed, you know, incredible writers and speakers and incredibly and musicians and people who are known globally. I think I would have been like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, yes, there are a few things that were on my list. I know I think about in about 2016, I had some mentoring and I did do a list of things that I wanted to achieve within the next sort of five to 10 years. And I, I have achieved most of those. There are a few that are quite annoying and had Radio 4 not just said no to a proposal that they shortlisted in their latest commissioning round, I would have ticked final one off the list. So boo to Radio 4 (laughs) and your commissioning process. Uh, (laughs) um, But we are going to pitch the idea to the World Service, so we might still get it on BBC. Fingers crossed. So I think in 10 years, I I would definitely, or five, 10 years, uh, I'd love to have another couple of books. I'd love to keep writing. And I would love those books to continue to fuel interest in the first two books. It would be nice if those two books, yeah, continue to sell and continue to be printed, you know, because sometimes your books can go out of print. You know, if if I had one or two more new books and these two books that we're talking about now continue to thrive and survive and exist, yeah. I would be very, very happy. Whereas if those books are sort of being kind of killed yeah. and, and put out of print, I, that would make me really sad. So mm-hmm. I think I would love to do whatever I can to keep those two books alive because they're part of me. Yeah. It's like literally a part, especially the first one, I think, is quite personal and vulnerable. The second one, I think I had a slightly more pragmatic way of mm-hmm. writing it, even though you say it's incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. You have a slightly different technique once you've written one and it really hurt to write it. But it's it's like a, a piece of my heart on the shelf, on the bookshelf, that one, you know. So you, of course, want to keep your books alive. Mm-hmm. 
And the fact that someone might put it out of print or something because they're like, oh, you know, this isn't, this doesn't really sell much anymore is devastating. So, yeah, but to, to do whatever it takes to keep my work out there, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe one day there'll be new editions of those books that I'll write a new intro or new chapters to, or, you know, and to keep speaking about those books would, would be great. And I I wish that and so much more for you, well and truly. And I hope I get to read your books in the future, not just the ones that are here, but also the ones that are in the works in some form. I'm I'm really, really excited about that. Rosie, it's been absolutely, it, it's been a privilege to have you here. I, I genuinely cannot thank you enough for agreeing to do this. I appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you do. I really, really fucking love your writing. And I hope to see so much more of it. Before we end the show, where can people find you? Where can people find your work? What's what's coming up for you? Yeah, well, if you look up the breakup monologues, you can find the book in all the places that you typically get books, you know, Amazon and so on, or at your local indie bookshop. And you can also look up the Breakup Monologues podcast on all of your podcast platforms, whether that's Apple or Spotify or something else. Um, it should be there and you should be able to find all our seasons that I've released over the past few years. And what's really important, and I'm sure people should do this for your podcast as well, is to leave a review or a rating. It takes just like seconds if you just want to give it a star rating. Obviously, five stars would be lovely, but yeah, yes. <laughs> um, you know, whatever you feel is appropriate. But those things really, really help. And it's really difficult to engage people with doing that and mm-hmm. understanding just what an incredible difference it makes because it makes the podcast more visible. Yeah. Likewise, if you rate or review the book on Amazon, it makes it more visible mm-hmm. there too. But if you want to get in touch on social media, I'm at Rosie Wilby on what was Twitter and is now X, X or something oh, weird. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but I'm still on there. I'm still hanging in on there despite all the changes and the weirdness. I'm on Instagram, which is where we connected, and you can find me at Breakup Monologues there. I'm also on the new threads. If okay. that takes off, we'll see. We'll at see. Breakup Monologues there as well. And I'm on TikTok at Rosie Wilby Author. Okay, brilliant. I will leave all of those links below. Rosie, it's been lovely, lovely having you and uh, wish you all the best for what lies ahead. Thank you. Thank you for listening to that episode. If you like what you heard, do consider following us on social media and maybe even sharing the episode with a friend that you think would really enjoy this. We're a independent and small podcast, so every like and share really, really goes a long way. New episodes out in two weeks' time. Till then, this has been Love and Citizenship, and I will catch you in the next one.